Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. You may have heard about a fairly new position in the lab called a Doctorate of Clinical Laboratory Science, or DCLS. I wanted to find out more about this position, so today my guest is Catherine Golab. Catherine is a medical laboratory scientist and also a DCLS student. Today we're going to talk about her journey through her career so far, about the outreach work that she does with ASCLS and ASCP, and then we'll go into quite a bit of depth about the DCLS position. All right, here's Catherine Golab. All right, this is going to be fun because even though we work in separate departments, we do work in the same lab. Yeah, we do. It's nice seeing each other on occasion. <laughs> yeah, on occasion. So shout, shout out to Wisconsin Diagnostic Laboratories. You know, for many of us that work in the lab, in, in any part of the lab, I think a lot of us started out like in college and had an interest in science or, you know, the medical field, but maybe you felt like nursing or medical school wasn't exactly a good fit. And I know I had that experience. Did, did you have something like that too? Yeah, I did. When I was in high school, I actually got lucky enough to do kind of like a job shadow type of offer where I got to... Okay attempt a job shadow in a field that I was interested in. And even in high school, I was really science inclined and knew that I wanted to go into healthcare, but I did not want to be a nurse. I describe it to other people as like having that capital S something special that makes you good at nursing. And I just did not have it. So um, I got really lucky that I was able to do a job shadow and kind of find a different field in healthcare that I had an aptitude for before going into college. Okay. And what was this job shadowing that you did? Um, I actually job shadowed in radiologic sciences. So when I was touring colleges, I was actually looking for colleges that had a radiologic science program. I didn't, I, I wasn't quite sure that that was exactly the fit I wanted, but it was something in healthcare that I did like that gave me some patient contact and wasn't being a doctor or a nurse. So I got lucky. I toured a couple colleges and it, I like to say it, I got the best worst career advice of my life. And when I was touring UW Oshkosh, they had a radiologic sciences program, but it wasn't starting for two years. And I didn't want to spend six years in undergrad. And they're like, well, why don't you look at medical technology? It's kind of the same thing. And medical laboratory science and radiologic sciences are not the same thing, not even close. Right. But <laughs> it, it drove me in the direction that it needed to put me in, which I'm forever grateful for that horrible advice. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> now, now, I'm curious because a lot of people that I've spoken with, they haven't, you know, especially when it comes to medical laboratory science, they hadn't heard of the field they just kind of accidentally happened upon it. So it sounds like that same thing happened to you. Yeah, it did. And when I went into my college orientation day, the medical laboratory science director is usually the one who is standing at the table at college orientation with all the science degree programs. So all the chem majors, bio majors, all of that is there. And then the laboratory science person is the one who is kind of reaching out to students and trying to grab all the you know undecided people. And my college orientation was for those who are undecided. They have a specific orientation day for students who are declared nursing majors or business majors. 
And the program director was standing there in his big white lab coat. And he's just like, who wants to be a scientist today? And I was instantly gravitated towards that. And he spoke about medical laboratory science and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, you know, this might be something that I want to do. This might be the field I want to go into as I was learning more from him about it. It it sounds like you weren't really sure at the start. When When you started the program then, did you have any doubts about that as you were going along? Like, I'm not sure this is right for me. Or did you, like, how long did it take before you went, okay, this this is perfect. I love this. So my first semester in school was just like a bunch of basic science classes. I took, you know, intro biology, intro chemistry, nothing that was like really dedicated to lab science. But thankfully, uh, John Strauss, who is was a program director when I was there, he had the idea to brilliantly start this course called MedTech 100. It's a one-week class during the what we call the interim, so the three-week cram period where you took one class in three weeks. That usually takes an entire semester. Mm, and he did okay. a one <laughs> he did a one-week class where you learn about medical laboratory science. You get to talk to the students who are currently in their clinical residency. And as a requirement for the class, you have to tour a hospital lab. And I was able to tour the Zablocki VA laboratory. And that was immediately when I fell in love with it. It was something that I thought was so cool. It was so interesting. I got to do so many different things and have that impact that I wanted in healthcare without necessarily being at the bedside and being, you know, upfront in people's faces in healthcare. And that was something that I really liked. And Mr. Strauss really liked this class because there were some people who would come into college and be like, oh yeah, I'm going to be a lab scientist. This is something that I obviously want to do. And then they go into the laboratory and realize, oh, this kind of smells or no, maybe this isn't what I was thinking of. And it's kind of, I don't want to say it's something to like weed out people or weed people in, but it gives you an experience that you need before getting, you know, four years into your degree and finding out that, Ooh, I don't know if I really want to do this. That's interesting. Like I, I tell people like if, if, if people ask me, you know what, if I want to be a, a pathologist assistant, what should I do? And I always tell them, find somebody to shadow, get in the lab and, and take a look at it and see if you like it or not. And it sounds like you're, you're kind of saying the same thing, you know, get people in there and get a yeah. little bit of uh it's unfortunate experience. that it's unfortunate that covid has kind of put a halt on that cuz a lot of laboratories yeah. won't let people into the lab people outside of their staff in the lab anymore and i think if we had that it'd be a lot we'd be able to bring a lot more people into the field earlier because we could show them what we do mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely i mean you know hopefully that that will change uh soon and we'll get we'll get back to that <laughs> Yes, hopefully soon. So then how did the rest of your program go for it? Uh, the rest of the program went really good. The program was a lot of just kind of like general sciences and like, you know, big 200 student lectures that, you know, you go through organic chemistry and oh. we didn't have to take. Did you, uh, did, yeah. did you like organic? Weirdly enough, I did. Oh, wow. um, yeah, I got lucky. I I was in the well, quote unquote on semester for organic chemistry because they had like an on and off semester because it was for us, it was two semesters long. So you had, I was lucky enough to do it fall spring instead of spring fall because apparently if you start in the, 
in the spring, you get the bad professor. And, <laughs> and I got the good professor for my class. And I actually really liked it because my professor is just kind of quirky and he, he didn't do like PowerPoint presentations for organic chemistry. He had, he came in covered in chalk every single day with a notebook that you can tell he'd been using for, you know, 10, 15 years and wrote, hand wrote all of our notes on the board along with us. So he made it really easy to understand. But okay. I, I actually, weirdly enough, I didn't take human anatomy and physiology. I had to take animal nat and phys because that was quote unquote the harder class. So they wanted us to take the more difficult class instead of the easier one. So I took animal phys, intro biochem, and then the last two semesters that we were on campus, because it was a what we call a three plus one program where I spent three years on campus and then one year in an internship residency experience. My last two semesters on campus were almost all med tech related classes. So I took hematology, immunology, a specific chemistry course that was dedicated for med tech students. And that was when I, as I started learning hematology and how to do differentials and the basics of, you know, complete blood counts and coagulation. That's when I really started falling in love with it. And then, you know, internship year didn't, or leading up to internship year didn't go exactly as I expected because in a lot of med tech programs, you interview to go to your residency, like they do in med school, you interview for your residency spots and then the program directors pick who they want. And I was in an unusually large class. We had 16 med tech students in my class and there were only 12 internship spots open. I was one of the top students in my class and I went through all four known program interviews and I didn't land an internship spot which oh wow yeah my program director was really surprised that i wasn't able to land a spot and he was trying really hard to get all of his students placed and he reached out to a couple of his friends through the american society for clinical laboratory science that he knew were program directors and said i have a really good group of students do you have spaces for them and two programs reached back out, the uh, Heinz VA Center in Chicago and HSHS St. John's School of Clinical Laboratory Science in Springfield, Illinois. And they said, we can't guarantee that we'll take them, but we will interview them. And I spent Thanksgiving in Ill Springfield, Illinois, with my mom interviewing at the School of Clinical Laboratory Science there. And then I spent Christmas or just before Christmas um, interviewing at the Heinz Center in Chicago. And now this was the Christmas before my internship year was supposed to start. I had less than six months to get an internship spot. Oh, wow. So, okay. <laughs> you know, we were panicking a little bit. And mm -hmm. on Christmas Eve, I got a letter from St. John's School of Clinical Laboratory Science saying, we would like to offer you a spot. And I was one of the inaugural students from UW Oshkosh to go there for my internship, which honestly, I think was one of the better things. My mom always told me, you know, things, things that you're not meant to get something, it won't happen. But if you're meant to be somewhere, it'll happen. 
And my mom was just like, you weren't meant to go to any of the internship spots in Wisconsin. You were meant to go to Springfield, Illinois. She was, she was right. I learned so much when I was in Illinois. I had the best experience of my life. I'm still good friends with all the girls that were in my um, internship program with me. And I got the experience and kind of the push that I needed to do some of the things that I'm doing now for my program director. Uh, Hilma Rincancio-Weimer, she was just this huge influence in how I was going to go through my career because she was just this outspoken advocate for laboratory science. And she did so many things over the course of her career. And I'm like, this is someone I want to be like. This is someone who is taking a stand for her profession and is making her profession known. And she was she was just so passionate about it. And I couldn't I couldn't have asked for a better mentor that way. And I was meant to go to Illinois to learn from her. So I was very grateful for that experience. Mentors, I, I hear about that a lot. Mentors are very important, uh, especially early on in your career, although really throughout. So that that is really good experience. So how was it then that you ended up back in Wisconsin? Well, I have family in the area. It was kind of weird. I interv- I wanted to work at Children's Hospital. Honestly, I wanted to work in their lab. And I put in a couple of applications and I got denied for all of them. And my mom was just like, well, what about this diagnostic lab? What, what about this place? What, do you think you can interview there? And as weird as it sounds, it was another one of those, if it was meant to be, it was meant to be moments where um, it's kind of a sad story, but it, it works out in the end. I think I interviewed around Christmas time was when I did my interview and because I was on break from school, I got to come home for a week and there was this big snowstorm. And unfortunately my grandpa was dying. They were sending him to um, inpatient hospice. And I really, really wanted to go and see my grandpa. But my mom was like, no, you can't, you have to make this interview. Like you, you can't pass up this interview. And she's like, your your grandfather would not want you to miss this interview. And I, my interview was supposed to be at two in the afternoon, but they called me at 10 in the morning. They're like, hey, we know the store snow is getting really bad. Would you be able to drive out now and interview? And I'm like, yeah, I'll be able to go. My dad was at work and my mom had already driven out to Grafton to be with my grandpa. And I was able, drove in for my interview and I'm like, okay, mom, my interview is early. I'm going to drive out to be with you and grandpa. And she's like, no, don't go. Just go home, take a breath. And she's like, you, your grandfather wouldn't want you driving an hour and a half in the snow and ice to come out and see him like this. Just go home. He'll be there if you need him to be there. And I think I got the phone call at the beginning of January. They're like, Hey, we want to offer you a job. Are you willing to take a spot in second shift. And I'm like, yes, I'll take it. And my mom was like, see, if you hadn't gone to that interview, you wouldn't have gotten this job offer. So it, it was kind of like, okay, buckle up, do it and get it done. And I came back to Wisconsin to work at WDL. So I've, I'm very grateful for that opportunity. You know, obviously the lesson there is always listen to your mother. <laughs> which, which I, I've I, learned that lesson, yes. Yeah, so have I. So have I. <laughs> You're very involved in the bone marrow procedures at WDL. 
Mm-hmm. And you get to listen to us every day, ask you how many there are when you bring them down. <laughs> <laughs> so how was it that you got involved uh, with the bone marrows? So when I first started at WDL, I started out on second shift as a generalist. And when I moved to first shift, I moved on to first shift hematology. And hematology it encompasses the bone marrow department. And our my supervisor was like, if you come to first shift hematology, it's a requirement that you learn bone marrow biopsies. And I'm like, okay, no big deal. And I actually found that I really like it because I find that Yes, I do like the laboratory and I do kind of like that lack of patient contact. That's something that when I was in high school and in college, that was something that I was looking for. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as I advance in my career, I actually really like it a lot more. You know, you get to talk to the patients a little bit. You get to interact with the PAs and the doctors who work in hematology oncology a lot. You get to interact with a bunch of other people in different areas of the hospital and I found that, you know, it's very rewarding and it, it's a good experience, I think, to have just because, you know, in the lab, we get a little desensitized to there's a patient on the other side of that sample. And yeah. I think going out on the bone marrow biopsies and seeing the patient and getting to interact with the patient, it really kind of brings that back. It, it's why I'm such a huge advocate for like, look, there's a patient on the other side of this and we have to do our best for that patient. So I think that's the best part about being involved in bone marrows. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you're, you're very right. It is, it's, it's easy to forget that there is a person attached to that specimen. That's a good point. It's a good point. Now, also you, you do a lot of uh, outreach work. And I know you go to local high schools and things like that and do presentations there. Why is it important to you to uh, make young people aware of laboratory careers? For me, I think of, you know, junior year of high school, Katie. Junior year of high school, Katie would have loved to have someone talk to her about this job. And she would not have felt as lost going into college because it's a scary thing to go into college undecided. You don't know what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And I think that if, and thankfully high schools are doing it more now where they're trying to bring in career presenters and have people talk about their field more now than they did when I was in high school, which it doesn't feel that long ago, but you know, 2012 was a different time for high schools And I think that, you know, if you go into the high schools and you expose them to something they hadn't originally thought of, because there are a lot of people out there who are like, oh, yeah, I really like science, but maybe they don't want to go into academia. Maybe they don't want to go into research science. Maybe they just love science and they love the science experiments and they love the bench work. Well, that's something that they could bring forward to medical laboratory science Mm -hmm. because it's all applicable there. So I'm trying to find that student who is maybe a little bit lost, but super into science to try and inspire them to come into a field where they can use their science knowledge on a daily basis and have a big impact on other people. Do you think you've done that like throughout these presentations that you've done? Can you think of any that you thought, yeah, I really reached that person? Yeah. 
I, I do because Menominee Falls High School is one of the first groups that I really got involved with. And I'm a member of their Healthcare Career Academy Advisory Board. So they have a bunch of people from all different ranges of healthcare coming in and talking to students. And I was one of the first ones that they brought in to do medical laboratory science. Sue Johnson, um, who is part of the ASCP Board of Governors and highly involved with the ABB and Versity Blood Center, she did a lot of talking about blood banking and, you know, helping them run their blood donation drive and everything. But, you know, you really need someone to specifically talk about lab sciences. And Dr. Altianu brought us in on that because his wife was on the school board. And about three years after I had started was the first class that graduated having have my pre- having had my presentation. And that was the first year that they had dedicated medical laboratory science graduates. They had people who had declared they were going to go into medical laboratory science at a college. And I was super enthused by that. Then recently, this last year before COVID, I was doing a lot of work with Junior Achievement Wisconsin, which they organized career days all over the state. And I was usually the only medical laboratory science person there. And unbeknownst to me, the daughter of our compliance officer at WDL was in one of the classes that I was presenting to and had no idea she was there. And I got back to work the next day and he had sent me an email thanking me because apparently I had had inspired his daughter more in a 30-minute presentation to go into laboratory science than he had in 14 years of being her father. And (laughs) I was just absolutely blown away by that. I actually keep that email on my desk because, you know, it reminds me that, you know, you know, it's 30 minutes. I'm doing these presentations on my day off, days off. I'm tired, but you know, there's maybe one person in the 40 or 50 kids that I'm talking to that I strike a chord with. And if I'm doing, you know, 15 of these presentations a year, well, there's 15 more people that can now go into the laboratory science field. And I think that, you know, over time that'll accumulate and we'll be able to notice that. Yeah, definitely. And that's got to feel great to uh, influence someone like that. I mean, that's a that influences influences the re- the rest of their life really so that that's mm-hmm. got to feel good that's really cool um yeah this is the people of pathology podcast with our guest Catherine golab we'll be right back you've heard me talk about labvine before and this is an online learning platform for laboratory professionals where you can earn continuing education credit And these are accredited by the Society of Medical Laboratory Technology of South Africa, as well as PACE in the U.S. and the Royal College of Pathologists in the U.K. I want to tell you about a new feature available on LabVine called the ConfLab. This is an opportunity for laboratory thought leaders, subject matter experts, and consultants to share their expertise with other lab professionals. And you can follow the link in the show notes to apply to be a ConfLab expert. Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress a Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Catherine Golab on the People of Pathology podcast. You're, you're also really active in 
both ASCP as well as ASCLS. And I wonder then, why then is it important to you to to be involved in professional organizations? Because I do for PAs that we have our own organization, and I'm involved with that too. And it's important to me. So I wonder why why is that important to you? Helma had a big part in that when I was in my internship because she was very actively involved at the state and national level in ASCLS in Illinois and the state organization, the national organization. And she really inspired me to get involved in these organizations. She specifically wanted me to stay focused with ASCLS, but I've also gotten more involved with ASCP as I've gotten further on in my career because I like a national organization giving me a voice. So me on my own going to, you know, the Capitol isn't going to make much of a difference because I'm just one person. But if you have an organization that represents, you know, 13,000 laboratory professionals, that's going to strike a different chord. That's going to carry, carry more weight to it. Yeah. And getting involved with these organizations, I'm making sure that my voice is heard. So a lot of people don't necessarily like being involved with professional organizations because they're like, oh, they're taking my money. I never really, you know, notice any benefit from it. Well, you need to get, you need to actively be involved and you need to actively be sharing your voice because if you're not actively voicing your concerns, nothing is going to happen because of it. So I think going in and actively you know, involving myself in these organizations, I'm helping make a change for the profession. And I'm helping, in my own opinion, bring bringing us to a future that I would want for the profession. Now, I know you're involved, you're, I think the vice chair of the social media committee for ASCP. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the other things that you do? So currently, that's my one big thing with ASCP. I'm also a member okay. of the, I'm a career ambassador 2.0 with ASCP. That's just a volunteer position. They give us a bunch of information each year for presentations for the high school kids and for, you know, promoting the profession and everything, which is why I joined the career ambassadors because mm, okay. I think that, I think that's really, you know, big thing to have you know, help from a professional organization and get resources from them to make sure that we're staying up to date with our knowledge and to make sure that we can then give the students resources if they do want to go into the field. With ASCLS, I'm very involved on the state level. I'm currently in the second year of my first term on the ASCLS Wisconsin Board of Directors. I'm a member at large there. I do a bunch of continuing, I did two continuing education presentations in 2019 with ASCLS at our state convention. I would have done one last year if we hadn't canceled the convention due to COVID. Um, right. At the national level with ASCLS, I'm I'm not on the committee, but I'm a, an observer to the committee because we allow interested observers to get involved with committees. But I'm on the DCLS. Book of Knowledge Oversight Committee. So we have a DCLS Oversight Committee that I'm an observer on. So I can participate in the meetings. I can give my opinion, but I'm just not allowed to vote on anything. I really like that because it allows me to kind of hear what's going on um, on that committee and you know get involved with that. I'm I've also done a national presentation at the ASCLS uh, Joint Annual Meeting with AGT 
last year in 2020 virtually. I got to do a presentation about social media actually with Dr. Cameron Mirza, Dr. Rodney, Rodney Rohde, and Justin Hannenberg, who's a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. He does the Lab for Life podcast, I do believe. I'd have to double check exactly which one it is. So he, But he does a laboratory-based oh, podcast. Right. He does that's a lab right, yeah. podcast as well. And we got to do a presentation nationally. I try and submit a poster abstract every single year of interesting cases to the national meeting. Just so that way then, you know, I'm kind of keeping up on my professional writing skills in doing that because posters are easy. They're small. They're, it's not like actually writing a full journal article, but I like getting involved with that kind of stuff. And I've also participated in the legislative symposium in 2018 was the year I think I went and we got to go to D.C. for two days and we learned about a bunch of uh, bills and how legislation works and a bunch of things that are currently involving laboratory professions on the Hill. And we got to then go to our state delegation offices. So we got to speak to people from the Wisconsin senator's offices. So Senator Ron Johnson and Senator Tammy Baldwin, as well as a couple of offices for our representatives and talk to them about you know, laboratory sciences, what we do, what we're looking for. At the time, we were currently looking for a sponsor for our bill on the Allied Healthcare Shortage Act. I'm not sure if it got a sponsor in the last Congress or not. It might be coming back again this year in this Congress. But it was a bill that was written in collaboration with ASCLS and ASCP and a bunch of other organizations to help get people into the field because everybody is so concerned about the nursing shortage. They're not as concerned about the shortages in other areas of the healthcare. And the Allied Healthcare Workforce Shortage Act was meant to kind of bring a light onto laboratory sciences and radiologic sciences and all these other fields in allied health that also have a shortage. And I think going into it this year, because I might be going to D.C. again this year to participate in our legislative symposium. The COVID-19 pandemic has really brought a light onto the laboratory. And now is the time to push on that light and tell them, hey, we've done a lot this year for this pandemic. We've run over 400 million COVID tests in the U.S. since the pandemic started. We have shortages that we're dealing with. And we need your help to bridge that shortage gap and help bring people into this field. So I think in being involved with these professional organizations, it really helps bring that spotlight that we need and bring that voice that we need. Yes, I I could not agree more. Now, you mentioned DCLS a little bit earlier. So this is Doctorate of Clinical Laboratory Science. Now, you're currently a student. Uh, in a DCLS program at Rutgers. Yes, I'm a second year student. Okay. Now, I I did a little bit of reading about this. So there's only, as far as I could tell, there's only three programs in the entire country. Is that right? Yes. uh, Rutgers was the first program uh, with their School of Health Professions to start the DCLS. The University of Texas Medical Branch, Galveston, started their program within a year of that. And University of Kansas this year is their second class. So they're bringing in their second group of students this year. 
Okay. And there's only like a handful of graduates so far from these programs, right? I know that there are, if I'm thinking correctly, there's three or four graduates out of Rutgers and UTMB graduated a class of four last year. I'm not quite sure exactly what the size of their graduating class is this year, but there's about 10 to 15 total in the field. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So why did you decide to pursue this degree? Helma brought it up once at, in my clinical years, she talked about the DCLS because she's good friends with Dr. Brandy Gunsless, who was the first DCLS in the country. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she brought it up once and I didn't think much of it at the time. I'm just like, I am going to be so content to be a bench tech for the rest of my life. I thought that that was something I'd be gladly, you know, happy doing. And the more I worked, the more I realized that, you know, there's a lot of my knowledge that I'm kind of putting to the wayside. There's a lot of knowledge about diseases and the way laboratory results work in conjunction with that, that I'm not utilizing. And I had an experience with a provider over the phone one time where we had a patient who was diagnosed with malaria and we were doing a malaria smear on her every single day to enumerate the paras- the number of parasites she had and they were basing you know treatment changes off of that well they were sending us her sample less than an hour from when they wanted to discuss her treatment change and on a good day a malaria smear takes 2 to 3 hours to do because it's all manual staining you have to enumerate the cells by hand and i sat down I was staying late to help second shift out and I sat down to, you know, pick up the malaria smear, which unfortunately had been in lab for about five hours, but we had ERCSFs and other stuff that took a little bit of a priority over that. And our client services department called and they're like, Hey, I've got a doctor on the phone. He wants to know about the malaria smear. And on a whim, not even thinking it through, I'm just like, put him through, let let me talk to him. And The first thing that happened was the doctor yelled at me. He was so upset because it was taking so long to do his malaria smear. And I let let him get it out of his system. And I'm just like, okay, let me tell you what I'm doing right now. I'm sitting down at the microscope right now. I have the slide in front of me. Once I get off the phone with you, I will enumerate the cells and I will have a result for you in about 15 to 20 minutes. And he's like, 15 to 20 minutes. And I'm like, yeah, I have to count... 2,000 red cells by hand and count how many of those red cells have the parasite in them. And he had absolutely no idea that that's how he enumerated the parasites. He thought it was something, you know, that was analyzer based that we could just put it on an analyzer and it would spit us a result in, you know, five minutes. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh no, like I have to count this. As soon as I get off the phone with you, I can work on it and I will have a result in the chart within 15 to 20 minutes. He's like, oh my gosh, you just like opened my eyes to this. I had no idea. Then later that year, I was attending my first national ASCLS meeting and Dr. Gunsless was giving her first presentation right after she graduated. So she was talking about her internship experience um, or her residency experience as a DCLS resident. And she was talking about all these consults that she had because she got to round with the, you know, providers on the floor and how she 
had these huge impacts on patients. She talked about this one case where the patient was in the ICU and they were waiting for a pacemaker placement. And the patient had a longstanding tracheotomy and they did a trach culture and it came back positive. And they were going to delay the patient's pacemaker placement 10 days to give the patient IV antibiotics because of the positive trach culture. And the doctor looked at Dr. Gunsless and was just like, well, what do you think of this result? And she looked at the culture result and noticed that the type of bacteria that was there was just common skin flora. And when you have a longstanding trach, it can start developing its own biofilm. So it'll mimic your skin flora. So she's like, oh, this is just normal skin flora. It's not an actual infection. It's what's on this patient's skin. And they were able to stop the IV antibiotics and get that patient his pacemaker placement and save them a 10-day inpatient stay for that. So I hmm. heard that story and I'm just like, that is an impact I want to have. Yeah. I want to be, I, I want to be able to have that kind of an impact and sat down and afterwards and was talking to my parents about it. And they're like, you sound really passionate about it. Why, why not just try? And, you know, I applied to both of the programs the following spring with barely three years of experience, which I was just kind of like barely making the cutoff because you need three years of generalist MLS experience to be able to be, you know, enter a DCLS program. And I was lucky I got into both. I, I got it an offer from both Rutgers and UTMB to join their program. And I ultimately selected Rutgers to pursue my degree with. The program is mostly online, I take it? Yes. So Rutgers and all three of the programs are actually set up a little differently. I picked Rutgers specifically because I liked the way that their residency was set up. So Rutgers, you do, it's a total of 80 credits post-bachelor's. You do, I think it's 54 of that didactic work beforehand. So I'm in my second year of four years pre-residency classes. And then I spend a full nine months in a immersive residency. So quit my job, work full-time as a DCLS resident. And I really liked that option specifically because you know, it's fully immersive for an entire year. I didn't like the prospect of potentially having to quit my job. Well, not potentially, I will be quitting my job. But I didn't like the idea of being nine months, you know, kind of working for free. But the benefits of the immersive residency and building the relationships at the residency site were kind of too good to pass up. So I'm hoping that, you know, I'll get placed where I want to be placed for my residency and that I can do that without having to move cross country. But at UTMB, they do, I think it's only 75 credits post bachelor's. So still, you know, a good amount, but they do what they call clinical core competencies. So they have four, four week long competencies where you go to UTMB and you do your residency portion there for four weeks. And you have certain competency requirements that you have to meet over those four weeks. 
And I thought the program was great. Dr. La Posada is a innovator in the field of laboratory medicine. And I thought that that would be a great program to go into as well. I just did not particularly care for the, okay, it, your residency is broken up in four weeks and you have to do it at UTMB. You couldn't do it elsewhere. So I thought for me, that would be very difficult because I'd go to UTMB, I'd learn all this stuff, I'd want to put it into practice, but I can't because I'm just an MLS. I just work on the bench. I can't do what I did at UTMB working as a bench tech. So I think that's why I leaned more towards Rutgers. For these residency programs, it seems like having one at an academic medical center, such as where we work now, it seems like that would be a helpful thing. Where are these residency programs? Where do you have to go? So Nadine Fridoshevsky, she is the director of the DCLS program at Rutgers. She is actively working to build more residency sites across the country. So Dr. Gonsalis was the first person in the country to have a residency site, and she did it at Augusta University in Georgia at their medical college there. And I do believe... Dr. Whitaker, who works with her there now, did her residency at Augusta. And then Dr. Rose Hanna, who graduated in the same year as Dr. Whitaker, she did one in New Jersey, at New Jersey, the hospital that's affiliated with Rutgers University. I do believe that's where she did her internship. Um, And Nadine is actively working to build more residency locations. So in theory, what I can do is I can put her in touch with the chair of pathology at the medical college of Wisconsin and freighter and say, would you be willing to work together to build a residency spot for me here? And they would see if they could do that. A requirement is that it has to be a academic medical center. So we would fit the bill. And if, MCW agrees to host me as a resident, then I would stay at MCW and Freighter and do my residency at MCW and Freighter. Otherwise, I would have to go to one of the other pre-established clinical sites and do my year-long internship there. So it does have to be at an uh, academic medical center? Yes, it does. Okay. Okay. Now, in some of the reading that I did about the DCLS position, uh, I saw the term, it was a DMT or the Diagnostic Management Team. Mm-hmm. And that seemed to be really kind of key to the position. Mm-hmm. Can, can you tell me about this? What What is this? And uh, what is the role of the DCLS on the DMT? So Diagnostic Management Teams were actually pioneered with Dr. Michael LaPassada um, when he used to work at Vanderbilt. He tells the the story and it's on UTMB's website about how he kind of got involved with this, where this one medical student was looking at this patient's results and didn't know how to interpret them. So he called the resident on call, who was Dr. La Posada. And Dr. La Posada helped him interpret these laboratory results. And the medical student was just like, oh, thank goodness you were here because I would have just guessed that was kind of like a little light bulb moment for him. He's just like, how mm-hmm. can I keep this from happening? How, how can I help medical students and providers understand, you know, what's going on in 
in the laboratory and with these laboratory results. Um, a study from 2015 showed that a majority of medical colleges have some amount of laboratory medicine education, but it only amounts to about 12 hours in the preclinical years. And, you know, rotations are optional. Nobody has to rotate through pathology. So there is kind of a lacking amount of education on how to interpret laboratory results in medicine, which is something that we kind of want to actively change. Dr. Laposada is helping that with DMT, where physicians can request consults on laboratory results. So one of the things that one of the DMTs that he helps run is the coagulation diagnostic management team. And another coworker of ours, actually, uh, Dr. Sarkar, who works in our hematology department as our coag technical specialist, he actually used to be on the DMT with Dr. Laposada at UTMB. And what they do is any patient who gets any laboratory coag testing that is above and beyond a protime INR, PTT, D-dimer fibrinogen, they interpret the results and give them a typed response to the results. So the provider doesn't have to guess at what this high or low or abnormal value means. The DMT looks at the patient's chart, looks at the clinical picture, and gives a patient-specific response to those laboratory results. And that's just one specific DMT. I know Dr. Julie Sauter, she works she was a UTMB graduate as well. She does anemia DMTs. So she works at specifically diagnosing or helping diagnose patients who have anemias and interpreting those laboratory results. Or DMTs can kind of just be pulled together as needed. So Dr. Gunsalis talks about this experience she had in residency where a patient was brought in-house for a 72-hour fasting study because of an abnormal low home glucose reading. And Dr. Gunsless got brought on by this, unfortunately, because the nursing staff was collecting all the samples over 72 hours and not just sending them to the laboratory as they were drawn. So they got a bag of samples with some of the oldest ones being 72 hours old. They could not do a lot of the testing that was requested because of that. So Dr. Gunsless was brought on with this. And when she contacted the provider who ordered the 72-hour fast, she was just like, well, I don't know if this was absolutely necessary. The doctor responded, it is the standard of care for this patient or for this potential diagnosis. So Brandy got a couple people together. She got a medical librarian involved. She got other pathologists involved. She got another endocrinologist involved and looked at what was going on with this patient and looked at the article that was cited as the standard of care and actually found that the patient didn't meet the standard of care to actually have that 72-hour fast done. So because the doctor had used the standard of care inappropriately. Mm -hmm. So in, in involving DMTs, we are preventing potential patient harm because of misinterpreted laboratory results, which as you know, the institutes of medicine, um, I think, which was just renamed, I can't remember what they were just renamed to, but the IOM, uh, they have shown that, you know, misdiagnosis of patients is actually a significant factor in 
potential patient death and increased healthcare costs is misdiagnosis. So if we can prevent misdiagnosis on the laboratory side, we want to be able to do that as a DCLS. So part of our role is going to be either leading these diagnostic management teams. So we would get consulted by providers saying, I need you to help me interpret these laboratory results. And we would bring together a DMT to help interpret the laboratory results. And then in collaboration with a pathologist, we would give them a typed out result or a typed out interpretation of the laboratory results. And the reason I say involving a a pathologist is because we don't get a national medical identifier. So we don't get an NMI. So we don't get a provider number. Mm -hmm. So we wouldn't be able to charge for our DMTs, but the pathologist has a a provider number, so they'd be able to charge for it. So we would involve them with that and getting that sent out to the provider and helping them interpret their laboratory results. So we would have a very large role in DMTs, either just in general or potentially disease-specific. This is a fascinating concept to me because it sort of becomes like you're like a translator between the the clinical part and kind of the lab part. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's better for patient safety and it's better for cost effectiveness and just it cuts down on unnecessary testing or repeat testing, things like that. And and another, another part of it that I think is huge is that it gets it gets you out of the lab and in front of patients. It's a patient facing position. Now, some of the things you said earlier, I know you said it initially, uh, you know, you didn't want that sort of patient contact, but that sort of changed for you, especially with the bone marrow procedures. And now the, the outreach that you do, was that part of like the draw for the DCLS position for you? I don't know if it was necessarily a little bit of a draw, but I saw the benefit to it. And I saw that, you know, I could, you know, in having conversations with providers, I could, you know, make a difference. As I was, you know, participating in bone marrow biopsies and, you know, on the floor, some of our bone marrow biopsies at Freighter are not performed by hematology oncologists or the fellows or the PAs who work in hematology oncology. Sometimes they're performed by hospitalists who are trained to perform bone marrow biopsy procedures. And in talking with them, they do kind of state that, you know, they sometimes don't know how to interpret laboratory results Mm -hmm. and they don't know what the benefit to ordering certain tests is, or, you know, maybe not ordering a specific test and in involving, you know, talking to them about the DCLS, you know, this is something that they would want. They, they've stated that, you know, this would be a huge help. They think it would be really beneficial to their practice. So in having that face-to-face contact, it also brings in another part of what the DCLS core competencies are, is not just physician education, but patient education. One of the things, you know, patients don't know how to interpret their laboratory results either, or know what the right thing to say is to request the appropriate laboratory results. And especially now with the CARES Act, with laboratory results going straight to patient charts, that can unfortunately cause a lot of, you know, confusion and potential misinterpretation. But in general practice, like in family medicine, you know, if someone says that they're having diarrhea, doctors might order a stool workup 
to figure out if they have, you know, a GI infection that's causing the diarrhea and that they need to be treated for. Well, patients might not necessarily know how to communicate diarrhea effectively. When, you know, we think of diarrhea, we think of the Bristol stool chart. And if you're having very loose stools consistently that are watery, we're concerned about why they're having that type of diarrhea. For some patients, diarrhea is just a softer feeling stool that's not watery, but it's also not solid. And when they, if you can make an informational packet about this and you show this to patients, like, okay, you say you're having diarrhea. Can you show me what you mean by this and handing them like a diagram or something where they can point it out? That can substantially reduce the number of stool cultures that you're doing because now you're accurately and appropriately talking about what type of diarrhea they're having and appropriately ordering testing as needed instead of over-ordering because a patient has one soft stool instead of actual diarrhea. The more that I think about this position, the upside to it is just huge. And the potential, once it becomes you know widely used across the country, is it is massive, and I'm really curious to see how it grows and how mm-hmm. how the DCLS is utilized. Um, yeah, yeah. So th- this is uh, this is really interesting to me, and I'm I'm curious to see how it goes for you as you as you finish up and do your reg- residency as well, Katie. This has been really interesting. I- I'm I'm very thankful that you were able to uh, come on and uh, talk about your career so far and the things that you've been up to. So uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me, Dennis. Big thanks to Catherine Golab. I've got a trailer for you right now of my interview with Dr. Nicola Perry. Do you have any stories of ways that you've inspired future veterinary pathologists? I have a relatively recent story that that might kind of illustrate this. Okay. There's, um, I came across a a new student friend just a couple of months ago in August. Amy, she's a, a vet student at Liverpool University in the UK. So that's the vet school that I graduated from, mm, and it's all right. also my home city as well. And she had come across me on this, there's a really popular networking site for vets. It's called Vets Stay, Go or Diversify. Now it's a, it's a UK based creation, and it's a, it's a brilliant creation, but it's a, it's a global entity. It's literally used by, by vets and, and vet students, thousands of them all across the world. So Amy, my new friend, she had found me there and she had emailed me just randomly to tell me about her interest in pathology and she asked if we could chat at some point. So we did, we had a Zoom call a couple of days later and we chatted for a couple of hours actually, it was really nice and I was just able to answer a lot of her questions that that she had about working in pathology, how to kind of carve out a, a pathway to to start in that career and stuff like that. You can hear more from Dr. Perry in episode 37. Katie's story is a good example of the importance of mentoring. I mean, look at the influences that her early mentors had on her, not only while she was still in school, but also in the early part of her career. And I really appreciate her going into some detail about the DCLS position and what it is and how it might be utilized. This is something I find very interesting and I'm curious to see where it goes in the future. And actually, I mean, this is a clinical lab position, but I wonder if there's a need for something like this in the anatomic 
pathology side of things, something that would encompass, say, histology and cytology together. So that's something to think about. I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. And also, it was my great pleasure to be back on the This Pathological Life podcast. I'll link that in the show notes as well. It's always an honor to collaborate with my Australian friends. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you to everyone for sharing the show with others. You're really helping the show to grow. Please share this episode as well. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.